Welcome more to come. PW Comics World's weekly comic book podcast. And I am, this is Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm the podcast producer and co-host. And I'm here with Erica Friedman this week. And this is a very special episode because today we're going to be talking about um, the classic manga and eventually anime, Rosa Versailles, um, which has finally, the final volume of which has come out in English from Udon Press. Okay, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to being able to talk about this. So before we get in to um, Rosa Versailles itself, can you uh, give our listeners just a, a quick introduction to yourself and, and what connection you have to Rosa Versailles? Well, my name is Erica Friedman, and I have been uh, writing about and lecturing about, thinking about, reading and watching uh, Yuri anime and manga for the last 20 years or so. And in fact, I'm writing a book about that right now. And as a result, um, one of the primary tropes of Yuri is the girl prince. And of all the girl princes that have ever been created, uh, while Oscar Francois de Jarget is not the first. She is the epitome of everything that we have ever hoped for in that particular trope. Uh, she sets the standard very, very high for all girl princes who've ever come after her. And so as a result, I've always loved this uh, manga and the anime. Um, and it was my very great pleasure to be up at uh, Toronto Comic Arts Festival, which is just finished up virtually for this year. So you can watch the videos online. I recommend it highly. A few years ago, when the publisher of Rosa Versailles, um, Eric Coe of Udon, and I were chatting, and he was talking about some stuff he needed, and I said, well, I'd be glad to help with that, and, and ultimately I ended up coming on as part of the team. Uh, I knew both the translators on it, and I knew Eric for many years, and he knew I had familiarity with the material, and so I literally ran around the house screaming when I got the offer. I was like, I'm going to be doing this. I cannot believe I'm doing this. Uh, I am still amazed. I just started reading volume four last night. And as I page through, I'm just flabbergasted by how beautiful a job they've done. I mean, uh, both Mari and, and Jocelyn did amazing translation work. And Eric has just really gone above and beyond anything I could have ever imagined for the visual components. And every page is a visual delight as much as a, uh, a content delight. And it's just, I was explaining to my mom this morning why it's such an important manga. Um, and I'm not really sure I can get it. The quick version of it is it is literally world changing. It is a story uh, from one person's point of view of the epic French Revolution. And I think for something as big as the French Revolution, having a single perspective view of it really brings it down to the personal level. Something like whether or not you're watching like Jean Valjean or Lady Oscar, when you look at Oscar's life, she starts her life as a noble. She's uh, brought up as a boy because her father has too many daughters and she becomes the Queen's guard captain and she's just intimately involved in all of the major affairs of the, the, the events leading up to the French Revolution. And then she, she and her guard, which at that point is the Garde Francais, um, become the center of the struggles. And the whole time she's fighting with her desires as a woman, 
her need to uh, find love, her personal life, and also her understanding of social class and her responsibility to the people of France, which I think is really some of the most gut-wrenching part of it. Uh, when she's realizing that the things that she thought were normal for a noble life are actually very unusual and that the things she thought about her society is just not true anymore. And watching her cope with those, uh, those concepts and how, how the world is changing around her, I just think for makes for an, an epic and moving manga story. Yeah. And, um, while Oscar is the primary, um, character, there's also a significant part of the narrative that uh, focuses on Marie Antoinette mm-hmm. and also um, focuses on other people not born into the nobility. Um, and yes. so that that definitely is a big, big part of the um, narrative. Um, so what do you think? How, how can you explain historically? Because this is a huge role in the history of manga and a, a really big place in in the the literature of, of manga even now. Like, you know, girls growing up in Japan are still reading it. It's been in print for many, many years. What is why is this so important? What is its place? It's a, that's a really good question. Ryoko Okada is um well, let me just step back and say that frequently when you talk about, uh, when people in manga talk about Tezuka, uh, Osamu, mm-hmm. they say he's the god of manga. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you're going to name any single individual the goddess of manga, you'd have to give that title to Ryoko Okada, who is still alive and still working. She had a vision for shoujo manga. She is among uh, along with the um, the Magnificent 49ers, she's actually adjacent, a part of that community. Um, she really was writing in the 70s. So you're looking at a time where shoujo manga, girls manga, is going through an incredible revitalization. Um, I think for your listeners, what they need to understand is when we think of the 19, late 1960s and early 70s in the United States, we think of the Vietnam War protests and we think of, uh, of uh, Woodstock and, and like all these things happening in society. Japan was having those exact same things that were Vietnam War protests. And along with the Magnificent 49ers, there were a lot of, a lot of women who'd grown up reading Tezuka's girls manga, manga for girls written by men. And they thought, I want to do that. So these women are are coming into the manga world and they're telling stories that they want to read the way they want to read them. Uh, and shoujo manga and its children, BL manga and Yuri manga, um, really just are, are born in this flash of this, this touch point of inspiration and energy and vitalization. And so one of the key things about, I think uh, you can really say about 70s manga uh, particularly shoujo manga and its adjacent things, is that the women in that time period are touching upon things like, okay, so just again to back up, really uh-huh. big, um, yeah. independent manga magazine, Garo, we had all these, we had Shigeru Mizuki, we had um, all these artists that are doing this cool adult stuff, 
a lot of edgy male artists are being, you know, highlighted. We had, uh, you know, all this stuff is coming up. And then you have the, these women artists and they're doing their own stuff that is edgy. They're talking about sex, women's sexuality and sexuality of men from a woman's perspective and for a woman's gaze. So when you talk about this period, there's so many things that are going on all at the same time. And no matter where you cut the 19, early 1970s, you're going to get a slice of massive change in the manga industry as new people are coming in and telling stories they want to see the way they want to see it. So you have Moto Hagi and Takamiya Keiko doing B, early proto-BL. Um, you have Ryoko Okada doing this incredible historical epic. You have uh, Yamagishi Ryoko doing uh, the first Yuri manga. And you're looking at these people who are creating whole cloth an ideal of shoujo manga. Manga for girls by women who grew up reading manga for girls. And it's new and it's different and there's just tremendous energy. So into that field you have Ryoko Okada who has this idea of this incredible, emotionally impactful epic look at one of the most epic uh, times in European history, the French Revolution. It's this huge story. It's so massive. How do you tell it? You tell it through an emo a person, a single person, and the people whose lives that person impacts. So you get things like Les Miserables. Is, is a good example of that same exact thing. How do well, we see the French Revolution? Well, it's a slightly revolution, different right? revolution, but yeah. Right. But, it's, but, the, but the point is, you take a look at mm -hmm. a period. Yes. A huge period, and you render it into some person's struggle. I'm, I'm a very big fan of the musical 1776. Mm -hmm. When you watch 1776, it's not about the American Revolution. It's about a place and a time through the perspective of John Adams's eyes, his perspective of what is going on in the Continental Congress. It takes a giant, huge, complicated thing, and it gives us a way to hold on to it. I feel like that's what this book does. It takes, it takes a person who is a person who you can really empathize with because they're so honest and good and you want desperately for them to be happy um, and then puts them in a situation which is so complicated that they are literally going to have to rewrite the world to change it. And in some stories, of course, not this one particularly, they do rewrite the world. And in this case, the world rewrites the person. And I think that for something like the French Revolution, that probably was way more common than I think than, than the other way around. Mm -hmm. And you have this ideal that this person was so honorable and so empathetic that they, just by existing, literally raised people up around them, even when they didn't necessarily mean to. And uh, it gives you hope, even in a hopeless environment. And I kind of feel like that's why people still really feel compelled to read, to, to read this story. Plus, it's really beautiful. I mean, I don't mean to minimize that. Her art is really quite extraordinary. There's also a gender component, right? Yes, like, yes, yes. 
there's a lot of complexity to Oscar herself and the way she is in the world, but also the, the other women in the story. It's not just like, oh, the one who's like a man is the interesting one. Like, there's there many female characters in the story. Do you think that that perspective on on gender and what it means and anything is had some impact on on manga that came later oh certainly absolutely um and as i said the the beginnings of this whole concept of shoujo manga this this ideal of um of the magnificent 49ers they were women who were exploring sexuality and gender. Uh, Ryoko Kida actually uh, has other stories. She has a, a manga called Claudine about a trans man that Seven Seas put out a few years ago. Um, and it's really empathetic, even though it ends up being a tragic tale. Um, spoiler, it's got to be a tragic tale because we are talking in the 70s. But the women of this period were spending time Thinking about sexuality, thinking about gender, thinking about sexual mores, thinking about sexual dynamics. Um, a lot of BL reflects heterosexual dynamics, which is why you have Semei Uke, because this concept that women were exploring women's sexuality using men as ciphers um, makes perfect sense, because, of course, men have been doing that with women for years. So it makes it makes perfect sense that they would. And yes, at the time, you had a lot of manga about sexuality, about gender. And and um, I think that having Oscar navigating a man's role as a woman and regretting the things that she can't have because she is not a man um, and being confused about the things that she wants as a woman is actually part of what makes her very charming. Uh, you know, her first love is hopeless for about 20 different reasons. And but you still empathize with her as a woman. You know, she understands herself now as a woman. And when she finally does uh, find the love of her life, it's it, it's a, a moment of both triumph and tragedy. So I, I think that it's all very part and parcel of that period of time. But also, I do think it makes a difference. But also to your point, and I want to make this very, very clear, Oscar is not the only woman, as you say, and all the other women are fully formed. And that is one of the most amazing things that even the historical characters that you know and you kind of have predisposed ideals of who Marie Antoinette is or, and who um, Madame de Pompadour is, um, all those women and the fictitious women like Rosalie, the commoner, or uh, some of the other countesses, all of these women are actually really fully formed, and they are not cardboard cutouts at all. And that's kind of amazing in a historical epic. Um, I, honestly, the only thing I can think of that I can think of off the top of my head um, as a novel period writer that would be equivalent would be Dumas, who loved mm -hmm. humans. A human, he loved writing these really fully, deeply formed, flawed humans. I mean, he really enjoyed humans' flaws. And I think that's, I think he kind of really delves into 
the source of flaws and will tell you and remind you, remember I mentioned this thing, this is the flaw that they carry? Well, here, here's what happens because of that, you know? Uh, yeah. She clearly really enjoys the heck out of exploiting and discussing human flaws as well as their, their finer uh, urges. So you were talking earlier when we got started about the trope of the girl prince, which maybe some of our listeners are not as familiar with. Um, but I, I think you're right. has been such a huge trope across Japanese manga and Japanese media and, and to a lesser extent, Western. Um, can you explain a little bit about what the girl prince is and how uh, Lady Oscar fits into it? Um, love to. <laughs> I'd love to talk about this. <laughs> um, the girl prince is a concept that actually has a historical component in Japanese um, literary canon. Uh, there's a Heian, so 11th century period, uh, 12th century period piece uh, called the... Um, of course, my brain is going to politely shut down now. Tori Kayabaya Monogatari. And the Tori Kayabaya Monogatari is about a boy and a girl who are better at being the opposite gender than they are at the one that they were born as. And it's ultimately a tragedy. It's, it's a very old story. But for a while, they actually switch clothes and they just function as each other. And the, the daughter, the girl, ends up being a fabulous prince. So, so there's a, a literary aspect of it. In uh, the mid-20th century, Tezuka, who we've already mentioned, created a character called Sapphire um, in a series called Ribbon no Kishi. And Sapphire is born accidentally with the heart of a boy and a girl. And is born as a girl, but in her world, she has to pretend to be a boy because a girl cannot rule her kingdom. So Sapphire grows up as a boy with these, you know, masculine qualities of courage and and great physical activity. And the, her girl side, though, wants her to find love and she wants to um, wear frilly dresses and stuff. And there's a lot of uh, mid-century gender stereotypes in that. So but it basically set this sort of set in stone. Everything Tezuka did sort of sets in stone this concept. And the concept that shoujo manga has this girl prince, the girl who is as good as a boy, as the boys. Um, at the boy things. At the boy things, right. And I think for a late 20th century audience, I know I grew up with this. When we were women uh, entering the workplace, we understood that a woman who wanted to become a president of a company or whatever, she would have to set aside things that are family things. Like, like the men easily set this stuff aside. You know, they just were like, well, I'll never get to see my kids first baseball game because my wife will be there because I'm going to be busy doing the CEO stuff. And that's a conversation I had with a real individual. Um, for a woman to do that, she was burned on either side. If she didn't do that and was, it was a good mother, then she couldn't obviously be, you know, as good as a man because she couldn't give all that time and energy. But if she did give up the family thing and let her husband take care of the kids, then she was a terrible mother. And, and what kind of a woman is she? So there's this constant pressure. We know women who join the workplace in the late 20th century know that to be 
successful in the business world, you have to be as good as a man. And as we all know now, you have to be like three times better, right, to be even partially respected. So Sapphire sets up this idea that she's better at being a boy than the boys. And Oscar, some decades later, shows up and she is also better than all the men around her at doing what she's doing. So she's given the position of Marie Antoinette, the new queen coming from Austria, the new queen's guard. And everyone around her is sure she just gets it because she's pretty, because she's, you know, she looks good on a horse. But it turns out very quickly, she's actually an incredible soldier. And she ends up moving up through the ranks. Um, and that definitely becomes part of part of the issue when she ends up um, taking a demotion later on in the story. Well, she has to prove herself again to a much rougher crowd, but she's always going to be one of the best soldiers, one of the best leaders in the story. So uh, about 20 years, almost 30 years later, uh, 25 years later, let's call it, um, there's another series called, well, late 90s, we're talking about Sailor Moon. There's a character, Sailor Uranus. She is a girl who's a soldier, uh, a, a sailor said she, she's one of the, the magical girls, but she's also cross-dressing. So she sort of hearkens to that girl prince concept. Um, and there are pictures of her in the, the canon body of, um, of art for this series with her dressed as a prince or dressed as a man. Uh, there's, uh, another period piece in the eighties. There's a story called Yajikita Gako and Dochuki. And one of the characters named Ray is actually, there's a whole arc where she's dressed up as a host in a host club. Um, there's just a lot of this sort of concept of this woman who is as good, if not better a man than, than the men around her, uh, just keeps going on. And then there was Revolutionary Girl Lieutenant right at the, the turn of the mm-hmm. 20th, 21st century. And that kind of codified this, but, but in that series, they were actually calling out so many things that Ryoko Okada did. You had characters in that series, Jury, the lesbian character, actually hearkening back to some of Ryoko Okada's work visually. Um, and you had a lot of the themes of Ryoko Okada's work in the story. And in Utena, Utena, who is a girl who decides she's going to be a prince, um, dresses in a costume that's neither the girl's uniform nor the boy's uniform. So she makes a uniform that's sort of her own. A style, but there's swords and there's fighting and it's really cool and has great music and it's pretty timeless, I think. Uh, but the, but the answer is that that idea by then is so baked in that by now the concept of the girl prince is something instantly recognizable, uh, to most anime manga fans, even if you've never actually watched any of those specific anime. Yes. You can definitely see those tropes, um, and, and a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But it also it also was a cultural phenomenon in a real way, um, you know, spreading out past manga, past anime, um, really to becoming a cultural force that you literally can see, still see on like makeup packages in drugstores in Japan to this day. Um, can you, you talk a little bit about like the Rosa Versailles phenomena? Well, um I believe you're going to be doing a, a talk about Takarazuka. Um, I think that has to be part of the equation. I think there's two really key portions here of the equation that most Westerners aren't going to see. Takarazuka is a popular culture, low culture equivalent of Kabuki. 
so kabuki is well known. It's high culture where men do all the roles. Um, it's a form of theater, uh, classical Japanese theater. There is a low or popular culture version of it where women do all the roles, and it's a musical review. It, it dates from the 1920s, uh, and Tezuka was a big fan and, in fact, actually lived in Takarazuka, which is a town. His museum is still in Takarazuka within walking distance from the Grand Takarazuka Theater. Uh, and as a result, when he created the Ribbon Knight, um, Sapphire, he incorporated this concept of the woman dressing as a man that he had learned to love through Takarazuka into the story. That has resonated very strongly through the years in Takarazuka uh, troops, which still exist and are still powerful, also have done their versions of the Rose of Versailles dozens of times over the years. Uh, and so it's a powerful force that that is actually reflective of their earlier years and also is reflected back at. So it's like Tezuka and Takarazuka are so in, so intimately linked, you kind of can't separate them out. And so you have so you have Takarazuka inspires Tezuka to create Rose of Versa, uh, uh, Ribbon Knight, and then the Ribbon Knight inspires Ikeda to do uh, Rose of Versailles, which Takarazuka then takes and redoes and does over and over and again and reinterprets. So I think I think there's like this this constant. Um, churning of this uh so you so that it's all sort of intertwined and the other thing that i think that westerners are never going to really realize is that ikeda sensei is a force of nature she's still alive and she still absolutely personally makes sure that every single thing that goes out under her name is approved by her so when you go to Japan and you're standing in anime and there's a corner a very small corner in the back of one of the floors that has like wine themed wines she has her own vineyards with art on the bottles that she did. Um, she has. So she her- actually has her own vineyards. I, I had seen pictures of Rose of Versailles wine, and yes. um, listeners, we we will include pictures. Um, but as far as I, I, I didn't realize those were her vineyards. vineyards. Yeah, wow. as far as I know, they are her vineyards. Um, there, the, yeah, she approves everything having to do with Rose of Versailles. So when you see those makeup lines, uh, those were approved by her. And and everything that we did, Rose of Versailles um, was announced, I think, in 2014, the license by Udon. Yeah. And people were complaining bitterly, how come it doesn't come out yet? Because every single thing that was done in those books had to be passed by her. And we worked really, really hard to get in a version of her work that would not just be acceptable, but would be appreciated. And I think I honestly think that Eric just went so far out above and beyond. He just did such a tremendous job on the reproduction of that book that um, the fact was what I, I knew it was worth every moment that went into it because those were going to look amazing. And I think they do, in fact, look amazing. So, yeah. So I think that part of why it's still so much a relevant part of uh, life is, is, is it's still alive. It's still out there. It's not like it's it's not some archive thing that people still talk about, like. Tezuka's work, where he's, he's passed, he's gone, but the work itself endures. I mean, she's out there making sure we're still aware of the work, but also I think the work will endure when, once she is actually gone. Yeah, um, this actually ties now into a sort of a process story 
which I think may be listener interesting to a whole different facet of our listeners because more to come being from Publishers Weekly, sometimes we'll take a look at like the publishing aspect of what goes into making a comic or manga or, you know, what, what are the behind the scenes issues? Um, I, I have been, the reason we have um, a interview, which if I can clean up the audio sufficiently uh, dates back to 2016 is because we've had our eye on this story for a long time. Um, and, you know, from the outside, you could just see that it was getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And there's clearly something going on behind the scenes, but it wasn't necessarily obvious from the outside. What what went in to all those years of of making sure that these books were able to come out and were up to standard? As far as I understand it, the the big delay was simply getting masters of some of the art. Uh, the magazine itself didn't have all the masters, uh, Margaret Magazine. Um, the Ikeda um, estate didn't have all of the masters, and some of the art had to be actually tracked down and found. And then when I came on, one of the first things I did was literally sit there with all the materials, with all of the original books, with all with all the um, the listings of when everything was published, and I had to I had this gigantic database, and I had to match all those individual color images and mm-hmm. the um, portrait images, all the the cover pieces to the magazine that it ran in. And so I make sure that this picture, and if you read the book right now, you'll see it says like Margaret Magazine, 1972 issue, whatever. That was what the first thing I did for this project was take all of these. It was a massive database of images and I had to take them and order them and say, this one came from here. This one showed up in this Tonkabon, but not in the original magazine. This one's from the magazine. This one's from, and just literally do that to for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of images, uh, which was getting those images was apparently the massive time sink. And so Eric had this idea right from the very beginning that he wanted this to be not just full color, but also right color. So if you look at that, and I don't have the actual issue in front of me, which is very stupid. It's sitting in another room. But if you look at the images, you'll have the color images will be marked where they are from, and, and they're in the order. So if a chapter ran in, X, in Margaret Magazine on that year, this issue, the color image that ran as the color image for that issue is going to be in front of it. So you're seeing the images the way a person reading the original magazine would have seen. It's never been done before. There's literally no version of that in existence in Japan. I mean, some of them are there, but not like this. Like every single thing from that magazine is in that volume. So you're seeing the color images, the side images, the little advertising images, the uh, splash pages, the cover pages, all of that is in there. The other thing that I think is really lovely, and this is something that I've never seen anywhere else, and I, I just absolutely love that Eric took the time to do that, the single color pages are reproduced. So in Shoujo Manga Magazines, and for your audience, perhaps they're not familiar with this, Japanese manga magazines are not just published in black and white. Um, they're usually very cheap paper, so you often get a lot of um, colored paper. So you'll get like pink, 
or orange or green or blue pages. But often, even in the black and white pages, a, a couple pages will be reproduced with one color. So it'll be black and red, for instance. And these pages are actually in this version. So when you open up a chapter, and it wasn't necessarily the color cover chapter, because Japanese manga magazines have a color image on the front. They usually have a color splash on the first story. And those of you, those of your listeners who read manga will be familiar with this. You get like a color page on the, the, the first beginning of the manga. But also in most manga magazines, the center story gets a color page. And so sometimes when you're one of the stories that's not in the front or center, but like next to it, you get a single color page. You don't get a full four color. So if you look at this book and you're reading along and suddenly the pages are in red and black and white, they're being reproduced that way for the very first time ever. Wow. Yeah. I mean, really above and beyond. So that was as far as I know, that was really the major uh, time sink, which is getting every single image in a good quality, reproducible version. I mean, that, that listeners, you, I've, I have the first two volumes. I'm working on getting my hands on the rest and they are beautiful books and, and they're huge. They are thick yes. volumes um, on, you know, beautiful, heavy paper, but even so they are thick. And so I can just mentally, I'm, my mind is blown at just the sheer number of images he must have needed to track down yes. that weren't in the volumes that you typically see coming out of Japan. Because part of me was like, I have some used Tankabons of Rosa Versailles in Japanese, which I don't read, but you know, whatever. Sometimes it's worth it. Yeah. I understand. Uh, and you know, it's a common enough manga that I was able to get my hands on it very cheaply. Um, but they're much thinner than these volumes from Udon. And I was like, what? I mean, I know the paper is thinner, but still, but it's, it's all this extra material. Yeah, there is. Um, so there's a number of things. Yes, he has extra, extra heavyweight paper. There's there's no doubt that this is much, much heavier than anything you'll ever see among in Japan uh, being done as. Um, there's that. There's a lot more content. Also, these are multiple Tonkamon. So there's actually, mm -hmm. there's like dozens of versions of these. So the original, the original manga is 11 volumes and or maybe I don't know I think the original volume is something like 10 or 11 volumes and then uh, within the past few years she's actually done a few additional volumes which I'm hoping that Udon will also be bringing out um, so there's actually some new post stories like the, it's sort of she actually ended the saga uh, of, of Rose of Versailles recently within the past few years. Um, and some of those stories are fantastic, like how Oscar's parents met. Um, but the, the original story is in multiple volume, little volumes. And then those are probably when they were done in the seventies, they're done in, in, in garbage paper because you're just meant to read them and get rid of them. It's like the magazines are in with like this recycled garbage paper, that doesn't hold up very well over the years, although I actually have one. I have one volume of the original magazine. Wow. Um, and which I bought specifically because I saw that it had Rosa Versailles and it's it's the one where Oscar dies. So I was very excited about that. 
so climax. Every issue for the last 13 issues says climax. Uh, <laughs> it's really pretty funny. And then there's these things called Kanzenban. And the Kanzenban are the first, are the first volumes of the story, which ends in volume four here in the new version. And then the additional stories is volume five. And that was what, what existed previously. So that's like the first 11, uh, 10 or 11 volumes. Mm-hmm. And then there's the new ones. But what we did for this was we took a bunch of those Kanzenban and combined them. So you have two thick volumes in each volume. So it's five volumes instead of 10. And then she did, I guess, 11 through 14 in the past few years. So there'll be one more volume coming out. If I understand that correctly. Mm-hmm. So the Kanzenban are, are the best version they have in Japan and they are they have cult they have some of the color images and they don't have all of them but they have some of them and they're the big you'll see those so this is like two Kanzenban two perfect bound volumes two perfect volumes and then all the art so yeah they're they're doorstops I think volume five is going to be like 600 pages I mean quite frankly it sounds like this is not just historic in that finally Americans and other English language speakers are going to have an official legal translation of the manga itself, as opposed to, to simply the anime, which I mean, no offense to the anime, but it's a different medium. Um, but of, of value to lovers of Rosa Versailles around the world. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm going to be honest and I'm not just saying that because I got to work on it. I do think this is a, historical um, translation of it. And I want to say that um, Discotech is putting out the anime again, and they've done a really, really fine job on reproducing that. They're putting out some amazing, amazing work, and they're also putting out Ikeda's Dear Brother, which if you are a fan of Rosa Versailles or Ikeda's other work, like From Morocco with Love, I cannot... Uh, no, no, she did not create From Morocco with Love. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you're right. She did not. My apologies. Um <laughs> I can't think of which which the other one that I was thinking of then. Anyway, if you're a fan of Ikeda's work, and feel free to cut my complete flub there out. Um, the if you're a fan of Ikeda's work, I absolutely um, recommend seeing Dear Brother because not only is that some of her best work, but also that director's masterwork that is absolutely Desai's best work ever, and it's so over emotional. And I'm just gonna tell you right up, it is soap. 101 like it is so soapy it's so over emotional it's so completely melodramatic but it's fantastic so is there anything that you want to share with our listeners that we haven't touched on regarding rosa versailles in any way shape or form the tears the tears are just amazing and they're actually iconic. Everyone cries all the time, but it's so iconic that a few years ago I was in Tokyo in 2019 in February and there was a kiosk for Rosa Versailles goods quite randomly in, uh, in one of the stations, I believe it was Tokyo station. And as I walked by, they were selling on the kiosk tissue boxes, 
with everybody crying on them. So they're like a tissue box with Oscar crying, a tissue box with Andre crying, a tissue box with Antoinette and Mary Antoinette crying. It was so magnificent. We were like staring at them like, we can't get these home. How do I, like, we were, we were literally you thinking could, about You could unfold the them. Like, the them out. And peel the, yeah. The tears are so iconic. Um, and in fact, Oscar's face, I wanted to say, while I was editing, because I couldn't stop myself, I literally took about a hundred screen caps of Oscar's eyes uh, and just have this collection that I call Oscar's eyes. And I just love them because they're so expressive and so wonderful. And they travel so far from her as a child to her towards the end. And I just, uh, the colored ones, it's just, it's great. It's just, the art is fantastic. Um, I'm going to say, I just, I think it's something, even if it's not to your taste, uh, it's really worth reading. And also, for fans of history, everything in it is historically accurate, except for the bits that aren't. Except for the bits that aren't. Yep. So what the bits that aren't are the the uh, Ryoka Akeda characters who are not historical characters, correct? Correct. Correct. And some of the side stories, but the people and places in, in Versailles and the events like the affair of the necklace is a huge event. Uh, associated with it um that that's all real so if you're watching it or reading it and going really like yeah really? like that all really happened including the court thing like that's all real well i really want to thank you for coming on our podcast today and i you know as soon as as we were talking about you know finally getting this episode to happen Heidi was like no nah, you need to talk to Eric she's definitely the person you need to bring on board and I was like you're right you're right well thank you very much for having me and, and thank Heidi for for uh, shouting out there I uh, really appreciate it and yeah I I'm I am so generally and genuinely pleased at how this came out that I, I got to sit and read it the other you know last night I'm sitting there I'm just going you know what even if I didn't work on this this would still be the best thing ever and the fact that I got to work on it is life-changing. It's just absolutely unspeakably wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you for everybody else who's working on Rosa Versailles. Y'all did an amazing job right down to the lettering. Everybody did a great job. Hi, I'm here uh, interviewing uh, former Takarazian Mitsuya Now outside uh, Duplex, where she just completed a cabaret set, and I'm also here with, uh, can you introduce yourself? Uh, Yuki Delipaoli, uh, who is going to be uh, my translator. Okay, um, can you uh, tell me um, when you were in Takarazuka and uh, what troops? It's Takarazuka, entering time? Yeah, it's for beginning to end. えっと、いつ入って、いつ終わるんだって何組ですか。本当ですか。ちゃんと正確なのがあれなんですけど、1980年、あ、かな。で、90年帯だ。90年ジャストの時です。多分メビー。メビー。そうそう。あ、あ、
and um, what it what uh, Rosa Versailles means to Takarazuka. どういうものかっていうのを説明してください。その次にえ、ベルサイユのバラは宝塚にとってどういうものかというのを簡単に説明してください。はい。宝塚は多分世界に唯一無二のあの ベルサイユのバラというのは宝塚についてにとってどういうものかですね。えっと、一番有名な作品でありますし、私自身もあの小さい時にベルサイユのバラのアンナ・ジュンさんという方がとても大好きでしたし、やっぱり宝塚のために
、ローズ・オブ・ベルサイユに出られましたね、はい、水谷さんね、でその中で、例えばまあどのような役をされましたかと、はいうん、まずそれが、その多分聞き方が一番いいと思うんですけど、はい、でその役をしたことで、どのような経験をされましたか、はいえー、と私はジェローデルという役をやりまして。二枚目の極地って何て言ったらいいんでしょう。もう一番、一番かっこいい、あの、感情も、た、立ち、位置、何て言うんでしょう。<笑>えっとここ、行動も、マインドも、素晴らしい、一番こう、男の中の男っていう役で、愛する人のために。あの、ジェローデル、is one of the iconic As a, the one of the most handsome,、mm-hmm. very cool, and、yes. a gentleman, as a gentleman.、Yes. And then,、uh, not only how he looks、yes. or how he thinks. I can't, I'm sorry, my English is not good. Yeah, you're translating well, yeah, but my English is better. So I was asking her about,、um, since Rosa Versailles is so iconic a show,、uh, what it was like,、uh, what it felt like to be in. In、uh, Rosa Versailles and to, to play a, a well known Rosa Versailles character.、Uh, what was that experience like for you? She knows the questions, right? Okay. Then, it's Mitsuya san ga, it's. Okay, so the role was intelligent? Cool. Very kind? Yes. So the role was very、uh, challenging,、mm-hmm. but the, the men. やっぱり女性が男を演じるっていうカンパニーなのでやっぱりオスカルという主人公がとてもリリッシュくて宝塚になっているんだと思います。Okay, so the Oscar is the role of the, the main character and he is very, you know, Cool and、um, manly, and then at the same time, very iconic for the、uh, show. So, this is the Takarazuka. Oscar、yeah. is a woman. woman. Well, I know. Yeah, yeah,、uh-huh. But I'm saying that、um, it's. 
do do people see a similarity between uh, Oscar and what Otokoyaku do? Uh, Oscar is a woman, right? Oscar yeah, is a woman, woman. but Oscar right. is a woman who who uh, lives a life that is similar to men of her time because she is in, in, in the guard. Right. And so even though everyone knows she's a woman, she, she takes on a role similar to that of a man. Right, so what she meant was, since Takarazuka is the women company, yes. right? So it's, it's the very unique role for the women actually uh, performing this character yeah. as a woman. Yeah. But at the same time, right. as a man. <laughs> so, uh, that's why this is very the Takarazuka. So the the dresses and costumes mm-hmm. are very iconic too for uh, reflecting the the time era. Yes. So um, the men wears military uniform yes. and the women wears very extravaganza dresses. So it's it's very um, big show to show the world. <laughs> it, it's yes, the thing to show. Right. Yes, yes, the visual style yes. of mm-hmm. uh, Rosa Versailles is very much like the visual style yes, of yes. Takarazuka. Right. It's yes. very very beautiful yes. and extravagant. Yes. Um, and uh, I believe that you sang um, some numbers from Takarazuka in uh, tonight's show. Can you tell us what those were? Mm-hmm. That was the two songs, Cinnamon and I Arebakoso, in English and yeah. also Japanese. And they were from? Cinnamon uh, was... Uh, cinnamon is from Nova Bossa Nova. Mm-hmm. I Areva Koso is from uh, Rose of Versailles. Okay. Um, thank you so much. It was a real <laughs> honor getting to interview you. Thank you very much. Uh, and actually, I have a second translator here. Can you introduce yourself? Hi. Uh, my name is Mary Kawatani, and I live in New York City for over 30 years. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you.